so pleased to have with us again Dr. Volker Geertz. He is the CEO of Vito Intervac at the University of Saskatchewan, one of the companies in the world or the organization's research facilities that is moving toward a vaccine against COVID. And uh, you're making some great progress. Very soon you'll be into what you guys call toxicology studies, which I guess means you got to figure out whether it kills anybody or not before it works or not. That's right. Thanks for having me. So the tox studies are really designed to address any unwanted effects to the vaccine. So you're injecting it into animals and then you study the tissues and you see if there's anything going on that shouldn't. And that will then inform you about the safety of the vaccine. Let's just step back for a moment and just I've got to ask this question because we keep talking about the second wave. Is it here or is this just the first wave and we're heading into fall and people are going back to school and spending more time indoors so it's just a bump in wave one or is it second wave? So I think it really depends on <laughs> where you're talking. So you know the second wave in my mind is is because people are not as diligent anymore in their in their public health measures and what they do, wearing masks and limiting contact and so on. And that is because the schools are now ro- reopening, right? People are, are, you know, there is a little bit more normalcy right now. And mm-hmm. so we will see a higher caseload with people coming closer together and not following the rules. And so that might be earlier in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver, then compared to Saskatoon or mm-hmm. even rural Saskatoon where you know it may take a long time or maybe there is never a second wave. That's what I think people are trying to sort out. I mean, is it obviously in Saskatchewan you can think of some reasons why we're we're dispersed. We're only a million people. That's right. Uh, so we're never going to have the numbers of a Toronto or a Vancouver in any circumstance. But is is there are there behavioral differences? Is there something else to explain it? Um, so I think from the you know in the beginning we thought that it might be the virus that changes and we will see a second wave because the virus has a new mm-hmm. uh, found a new way of it's evading morphed. the immune system yeah. or something. But that's not the case. Um, right now, I think the, the higher caseload we're seeing around the world is um, that everywhere kids are going back to school, that there's more activities, whether it's uh, rallies in the U.S. or other activities. And they're partying. Um, and partying and yeah. so on. And so those activities are, are contributing to the spread and even to the super spreaders. And so then you have a few individuals that are positive and not staying at home. And they could, at, at those parties then, mm-hmm. you know, potentially infect 30, 40, 50 people. And then you have these little centers flaring up. And, and so that's then how, how this can become a bigger problem. It's inevitable that we're going to, and I think we're all feeling it, the COVID fatigue, like how long? And, you know, first you told us not to wear masks, then you told us we must wear masks. I think there was a poll done in the U.S. that said a quarter of the population just doesn't believe anything that the health officials say which then leads to or in their own mind justifies that behavior right and that's a huge problem for us right now and i think canada has actually done very well in Mm -hmm. terms of communication we were trying to or you know the public health officials were trying to be as clear as possible from the beginning 
you know, but, but the situation changes. In the beginning, the advice was for the public not to wear masks because we thought we needed them in the hospitals, right? right? And so now that um, there is a sufficient supply for the hospitals, uh, we don't see as many IC ICU patients as we had anticipated. Well, then that means others can wear a mask too. So then, of course, you recommend to wear a mask. So, you know, it's hard in the beginning of a pandemic, which is so big and nobody right. really can foresee how it's going to unfold, to always give the right advice and stick to it. You have to adjust and, you know, as the situation unfolds. And I think that's what we're seeing and in, in most countries, not all. It's, it's raising that question for me because we're all watching what's happening with uh, President Trump and his interview with Bob Woodward and when did he know, what did he know, and when did he know it, all of those things. Issue is the same here. And almost in every other country, we, we, it seemed like we weren't paying attention and we'd let all our readiness in the post-SARS world kind of slip. And therefore, we didn't have any PPE and we didn't know what we thought about masks and all of that. How, how do you keep that uh, tension up so that we are ready? I think the difference what we have now compared to what we have seen before is that um, SARS-1, MERS, Zika, influenza, most of them didn't have the global impact that mm -hmm. this one has. So, you know, in people's mind, maybe after a few years, well, the MERS or Zika issue, that wasn't really a big deal. And so um, this urgency is maybe not there which then you know when other priorities are there and you know money is not available then you might shift some money away from paying an insurance fee for the pandemic preparedness like having ppe available for example, <laughs> ppe or manufacturing capacity yeah. or research facilities that can do the type of work um, all of those things together i wouldn't say the country was unprepared but you know, I think we could have been better prepared. Better prepared. You've mentioned manufacturing, which is one of those things. I mean, there's lots of groups around the world, we'll talk about that in a minute, working on this vaccine. But once we find one that works, or several that works, then you have to make it in the tens of millions to millions have it effective. Even. Do yeah. we have that capability? So Canada doesn't. Um, of those seven that are going forward at the moment, um, you know, if we let's just assume three or four will make it, right. and we'll start mass production. And they all are already manufacturing. They're waiting just for the green light to then ramp it up and even start distributing it and so on. Um, those all had to be supported right now. They were all supported by the Gates Foundation, by the WHO, by international agencies and so on to build up that capacity mm -hmm. so that we can quickly do it. And even with all of that being ramped up right now, it's still going to take a year or maybe even two years before we are in the situation that we have immunized all the people that needed to be immunized. You've said as a scientist, and I know you have to kind of separate this out from the bragging rights that you have for uh, doing such an amazing job here in Canada, but that you think that the vaccine you're working on is in some senses superior to others, uh, that it'll last, it'll, it'll uh, succeed in the long run where others we may find flaws in it. Why do you say that? So the, the type of uh, vaccine, the technology that we are using is what is called a subunit vaccine. And so that is a proven technology that has been in humans before for other vaccines. So, you know, hepatitis, for example, or mm -hmm. pertussis, tetanus, those are all subunit vaccines. So we know they work. 
and they are easy to manufacture, so you can make many million doses very quickly. They're very cost-effective, and most importantly, they're safe. They have a really, really good safety profile. And so if we compare them to the others, so the RNA, so the Moderna vaccine, or the German BioNTech vaccine, the Pfizer one, um, those are new technologies that have never been in humans. And although scientifically they all make a lot of sense, we actually don't know how well they work in humans. And then those adenovirus vaccines, so the, the Oxford vaccine, right. um, the AstraZeneca, and then also the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, those are based on a, another virus, a harmless virus carrying that gene of the COVID um, virus. And so that's a technology that has been experimentally tested already in a number of clinical okay, trials. Okay, what does that mean? You're injecting a new virus but not yeah, a deadly so, one. Right. So for that one, we, we're using what is called a viral vector. So you're using a common cold virus, an adenovirus, which doesn't cause disease by itself. And mm -hmm. you, you genetically engineer it so that in addition to its own genetic code, it also has a piece of this COVID-19 vaccine. And so when the virus goes in and does, you know, infect cells and replicate and so on, it doesn't cause disease in people. And it, it makes the immune system believe that the SARS and the COVID-19 uh, virus is there. And so then we're making an immune response immune. To, this, to this genetic information, to this, this protein that is encoded by that gene that we engineered into it. So it's a really elegant technology. It's really good. Um, it has been tested experimentally for malaria, for TB, for HIV, and so on. And in the future, we will see more of those vaccines going forward. But as of now, right. there is currently no adeno-based vaccine in humans. So go with the tried and true, which is what you're proposing, which is you want to trigger the immune system uh, to fight it to let the body fight it itself. That's right. We're using a part of the, the COVID-19 virus, but we're not using another virus. We're not using RNA. Mm -hmm. We're using a proven technology. We're showing it to the immune system. And by adding what is called an adjuvant, so it's an immune modulator, a stimulator of the immune system, we're saying to the immune system, hey, here, this is what you need to make a vaccine, or an immune response against. Sorry, this is what you need to make an immune mm -hmm. response against. And then... Um, we have an effective vaccine. So you're in this toxicology phase, the kind mm -hmm. of the first one, which is find out that it's just, it, it's not lethal right off the bat. And then you start to move into testing, which you're going to do very quickly. Um, finding people uh, at this point to become the human guinea pigs and say, okay, ready, I ready. Is that going to be difficult? And what are the risks like genuinely for people who want to stand up and say, okay, I'm going to do uh, what I think is right for my country, not just for me. Um, is it going to be hard to find that? No, I don't think so. And we have had lots of people contacting us, phoning me in the office, sending emails all the way from Vancouver to Halifax, from coast to coast. Really. What motivates them? Um, they wanted to just, uh, I think they're proud of the Canadian technology mm -hmm. a made in Canada vaccine going forward. Um, they want to be part of it. And so what, in, what is in, in, in involved in that? Um, you know, in the beginning, you go with a very, very low dose, mm -hmm. and then you just um, watch for any unwanted reactions. And in those the phases of the testing. That's right, mean. and you okay. slowly go up higher and higher. And so in the beginning, an unwanted reaction might be, you know, does it hurt at the injection mm -hmm. site? Do you develop pain in your arm? Do you develop slight 
fever or you know are you tired or things like that those are all being recorded and based on the outcomes from that we are then allowed to slightly increase the dose and and so on and so um, it's a step by step and it's constantly be reviewed just as the AstraZeneca is right now and and, and as soon as there is anything that stands out um, a review board will review that and then assess whether there's any real issues or not. I want to ask you about the AstraZeneca thing because I guess nobody really knows but they halted their trials because a person that was being tested fell ill so a that's good news the system works exactly (laughs) and uh they 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 were able to stop it but it raised this question for me which is in the court say you have 500 people or even 100 people that are being uh, injected with the vaccine and you're testing it just in the run of life you're going to get a cold you're going to in extreme cases maybe be diagnosed with a serious illness a heart condition cancer or something then how do you sort that out as to what have what might have been triggered by the vaccine and what is just the natural course of someone's health state? Right. So there is every trial has a review board, so experts that will review completely any information that is available there and then make the conclusion whether it's vaccine related or not. And maybe it can you know, maybe the conclusion can't be made based right. on the evidence or the information that is available. But like you said, what this shows is that the process works. There is a rigorous review process. It's much easier for us right now going into phase one, phase two trial, like you said, whether we maybe have a hundred volunteers while they are very closely monitored. These phase three trials now they have over ten thousand people, right? So there you have people on the street that are part of it. They're all being closely monitored, but they live their normal lives. And mm-hmm. so like you said, if they can in contact with a common cold or or some other health problems they will um, be flagged and then have to be individually reviewed to see if there is any correlation to the vaccine or not but that's i mean it raises all these questions so i'm in phase two or phase three trials and you've given me the covid vaccine and i am riding on the subway or on an airplane and i come in contact with a covid positive person and end up with symptoms then how do you sort it out? All the numbers game. So um, of the 20,000 people in the trial, or now, like, you know, we probably saw on the news, um, some companies even want to increase it to 40,000 people. So then you have, let's make it simple, 20,000 vaccinated and 20,000 that have not received the vaccine. And you compare the numbers, right? You say in the face of normal life, exposure to COVID and so on, how many in the vaccinated group will get sick compared to your control group? You have to review in each individual case, but it's it's a number scan, and hopefully the control group will be much higher than your vaccinated group, and that will show you that your vaccine works. But it is possible that somebody that has been injected with the vaccine um, might still be infected if, if you're still uncertain as to its level of effectiveness. Could be, yes. And is there any fear that the other side could happen, that you have injected me with COVID COVID as part of the vaccine and therefore I become uh, a carrier of some kind? Not with these technologies. So they are, okay. none of them uses a live virus. So all okay. these vaccines are dead. Um, so by injecting you with the vaccine, you're now not infectious to others. You cannot infect others. That's not possible. Okay, well, that answers that. And I'm really relieved to, to hear that because that's a discussion that's out there. Uh, there's so many other little things that are going on. Um, and I, I want to ask you about testing 
and why we, while you're busy in your vaccine world, <laughs> where are the people and who's doing the lead, leading edge stuff on testing so that we could get up every morning and before we go to work or walk into the office or the Senate or whatever it is, take a test and get a result then or in an hour? Like, are we anywhere close to that? So there's a number of new technologies that are being developed right now that will significantly reduce in reducing the time. Um, so some of them are under review, I believe, and soon might become available. Um, so it's a, it, you know it's country by country right yeah. now a decision on where they are with their tests and and politically how important it is for that administration right. to put. Um, resources into testing or not because to me this is a no-brainer I mean if we can test then we can contact trace and we can monitor literally on a daily basis and people don't have to go home and 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 isolate themselves for two weeks because you'd be in a constant process we can do it for baseball players and football players right. why can't we do it and on a, a larger scale right and i think most people would agree with you i mean it's fantastic from from my perspective to see that saskatoon has now a drive-through yeah and regina exactly. has a yeah. drive-through so you know to really bring that um, time down yeah um i think most people would agree however there is some people that that say the more testing we do the more cases we will find correct and so, you know <laughs> like south of the border is what you might maybe. be referring to there yeah. yes well of course it's going to go up but it's better to know than not exactly. know yeah, I mean, for this sure. is the other interesting testing and i don't know with this going on here but i think it is going on in ontario that people are actually testing um wastewater or sewage as as a way to trace where there are issues is that a um feasible uh, approach on a large-scale basis? Yes, and I think it's actually a really, really uh, good approach. Um, wow. So, <laughs> so what it does is, like, it depends on on um, on really, really sensitive tests. So, I mean, the, the sewage is really, you know, if you think about it, is, is a way of pooling thousands of people into mm. one tank, right? Yeah. And so if you now had a test that would be sensitive enough in that fluid to still detect the presence of the virus, um, you can predict. You'd have really good detection. Spread. You can't go and say, um, you know, um, Volker Geert's household there is yeah. positive. You can't yeah. make that conclusion, but it gives you an idea of how quickly these diseases spread and how far they get within countries and, and you know, whether they're already in Toronto, whether they're in, in Edmonton now or in Calgary. Yeah. So it's, an, it's a pre-warning system. You, we, we can constantly monitor and we can constantly say, okay, these are the pathogens that currently are circulating within the Canadian population. One question that a lot of people are bringing up with COVID-19, I'm sure you've heard this too, anecdotally, a lot of people are saying, I had this in December already, right? right? Before this virus was even right. found. Did they? We don't know, <laughs> right? And most likely they didn't. But having a system like this would allow you to do exactly that. There's other uh, another test that's out there, and, and I get people go through it all the time, is actually testing, you know, your own gut contents, I guess. I can't put it any more elegantly than that. Like, is would that be a good test? So I think there is then... <laughs> like a mini sewage, right. sewage system? <laughs> so I think the problem is that then, then somebody has to interpret that. Right? Yeah, and okay. so if we leave yeah. it up to people to now sample themselves, and then, um, you know, as soon as you find something that shouldn't be there, yeah. um, freak out, um, 
you know, like so. <laughs> no, so there exactly. is finding exactly. something and something actually making you sick is still very, very different. Yeah. And so these systems, the sewage control, is really just a you know a information system, yeah. a, an alert system, letting us know what is circulating in our population. And presumably, it would allow us to target geography so that you know. Fishing Lake, Wadena, Saskatchewan is not subject to the same rules as Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, or Toronto, Ontario, or, or New York, New York. For example, right? could be, yeah. And if you using the sewage systems for that, which is, yeah. okay, you're good. We don't need to shut down your businesses, but you're not good. Maybe we should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, I would love your thoughts uh, on Denmark, Sweden, the people who have done the so-called herd immunity approach or at least a much more not closing down their systems totally uh, the swedish example uh look good then they had bad numbers then it's come back to kind of reflect the numbers similar to those of us that engaged in the really extreme shutdown so a couple of things is there such a thing as herd immunity yes so the short answer is yes. Um, herd immunity can differ. So we can have very, very good herd immunity for some diseases and maybe not so good for others. And so that all depends on how well the virus spreads. So if you have a virus that, you know, if I was positive and I could now infect 50 other people, mm-hmm. it is much more difficult to control than if I had a virus that potentially could infect three. Right. Right. And so the difference there is if we now wanted to control this for the 50, it's almost impossible. So essentially everybody would have to be vaccinated because the chance of me finding a non-vaccinated person is much bigger if I infect 50. If it's only three, we can have a lower level of herd immunity. We don't need to have everyone being positive we can get away with 80 percent or 75 percent and so on and so that number is identified for each pathogen we know what the r naught is we and that's the, how it's called we know how how much it spreads and so for this one it was actually not as high as we initially thought and so right. therefore herd immunity will play an important role in it and I do think it can help in, in protecting it. And, and we're now at that stage because we're seeing the number of deaths decline. Uh, people are being infected, but not with the, the dramatic numbers we saw at the beginning. Obviously, the most vulnerable. Well, I think we're starting to see an effect of herd immunity. But again, we're, we're so low. If you look at you know, how many people really in the population have been infected so far, like we're the 1% percentage is so low, exactly, yeah. that you really on the big picture, that's not herd immunity. What you really need is 70% of the people okay. infected, right, to really have, or 60 to have an, an, an effect. And so typically herd immunity starts to be effective in the range of 70 to 80 to 90 percent. For diseases like measles, you want something very, very high because the measles virus is very effective in even infecting people on the other end of this room. That's how contagious it is, right? So at 1% right now, we're not even at that level. But once vaccines come out, then we can be at that level. Because then people will go out into the population, will socialize with each other, and, and people will be exposed to a milder form and then develop this? Like, how is that going to well, work with the vaccine? Well, the vaccine will help. So the vaccine will give you the immunity right. that is part of, like, so you are becoming part of the vaccinated herd. So you are herd okay. immunity. And so if we assume that we can get um, 70% 
people vaccinated, ideally, then you would have a, a, a protective level. Okay, so that's different than the notion of herd immunity, which is if I'm semi-exposed out there in the public, like I am with a flu every year or whatever it is, do I build up a resistance you do. to that? And okay. you become part of the herd. Okay. Um, so okay. I can induce herd immunity either by you surviving an infection and now right. being immune or by me vaccinating you. And so Sweden and Denmark, as um, or Sweden in particular, yeah, Sweden. and then England in the beginning, um, as the vaccine was not available, they said, "Well, we let every like we let certain parts of the population get infected to raise herd immunity in mm. that population." And Denmark now is, um, you, you know, Denmark is just allowing uh, kids at school to not wear masks and right. so on, but they still have very strict public Rules, health measures exactly. in, in, you know, washing hands, distancing and all those things. They're just a little bit more um, flexible, I guess, on the rules in, in school. Sweden was the country where, where they let people uh, socialize and, yep. and took into calculation that the middle age group would get infected, would build up herd immunity and therefore protect the most susceptible, the elderly, by essentially, you know, having a, a, almost a wall around them, if you right. want. Um, of, but, but as it turns out, the infection rate didn't even make it to the level where you had effective herd immunity. You never got 70% of all Swedish middle-aged people infected. And so hmm. you never reached that level where it actually made an impact. So how do you define whether that's a success or a failure? I think in looking <laughs> back at the Swedish example, you can just show that it was an you know, epidemiologically, an in, in interesting way of looking at it, like, you know, like the opposite of what, what most countries were yeah. doing. Um, has it worked? I think you really have to look at the data long term, five years out, whether there's any differences or not. I would predict that it didn't make a difference. And, and the reason for that is that they didn't get 70% of all Swedes infected. So what are people supposed to think now? I mean, parents across the country are going crazy not knowing whether to send their kids in they're pulling them out if one teacher has you know test positive people don't know whether they should go to work i mean we're in a particularly kind of crazed post labor day <laughs> phase right now what's your sense i mean should kids go to school should we go to work yeah so i got three kids and uh, they're all at school and at daycare um, i'm as concerned as any other parent yeah. is but um, i think the best is to follow the rules, to um, talk to the children, make them understand that it is important to wash their hands and and uh, wear masks and so on. And, um, you know, for example, right now my kids are at home because one of them has a runny nose. And mm -hmm. so just out of precaution, they're all staying at home. And so I, I think it's the best we can do at the moment. As soon as a vaccine is available, I would say everybody should get vaccinated. But right now, get on with life while we wait for that. But follow the rules. Follow and I think the rules, that's absolutely. Really yeah. what's, that's the most important. What are you thinking about your vaccine? Can you give us a timeline at all? Well, so we're going into human clinical trials if everything goes well and by the end of this year in December. And so then, um, you know, sometime next year, hopefully summer or so, is when we would be in a position that we had vaccine doses available for, for targeted population. But and it these, all depends on the regulators and how well right. it goes and how well the clinical trials go and whether the regulators approve it or not. So that would be our ideal scenario. So when we hear about vaccines available by November 3rd, 
not that, that I mean, it's just an arbitrary date we're pulling out of the sky there. Is that even realistic? Anywhere. Um, I don't mean just yours. I don't, I mean anywhere. Th- I don't think so. Yeah. But there is some, um, like those five that we yeah. talked about earlier, they are very advanced. And so I think by the end of the year, um, they might, two or three of those might get um, the green light from the regulators to start giving their vaccine under an emergency authorization to okay. to populations that really need them, so frontline healthcare workers and so on. I love talking to you. Thank you. You scare me, and then you reassure <laughs> me, and then at the end, somehow, I feel okay. So thank you. Thank you for Thanks having for me. Being, <laughs> and we'll talk again soon. Believe me, I'm not going to leave you alone. Sounds good. <laughs> Dr. Volkler-Gibbs.